What happens when your worst fear becomes your reality? Hi, I'm Brent Cassidy. Welcome to the Nightmare Success In and Out podcast, where we explore how to overcome your fears and nightmares and set yourself free. We're going to be exploring this topic with guys that was in Leavenworth with and others who survived their own nightmare. These stories can be inspiring, sometimes sad. There's some humor, but hopefully you can come away with a nugget of something that'll help you knock down some of the prisons you built up in your own mind. All right, Nightmare Success listeners, we're back. I'm back. I took a week off and uh, just got back from family vacation, which was great. Held my family hostage for a week. Awesome. Uh, I have, we all come here for, you know, what happens when your worst fear becomes your reality? How do you adapt, survive, set yourself free? Well, I have a, uh, I have a great guest and, uh, Brandon Coluccio, who I've been doing a little bit of research. I, I, it's funny how we all got connected because Justin Paffrony, who is somebody that I follow and, uh, he does white collar advice, helps people through the process of, of getting, out of their nightmare and smoothing the ride. Um, anyway, we I emailed him, told him to make a great guess, and so he put us um, Brandon and Justin and me in a in a um, group email, and said Brandon would be a great guest also. And so Brandon reached out uh, through the email and said, "Yeah, I'd love to do that." So we have connected, and I want to uh, congratulate Brandon. He just became a dad. For baby girl on was it Thursday, Brandon? Thursday, yeah, June eighth. Thank awesome. you. Awesome. So he he joins the yeah. the uh, girl dad fathers. I've got three, and I, I just told him it's awesome. You'll love it. Uh, a little bit about Brandon. I mean, the cool thing about Brandon's story is he was doing a lot of cool stuff before his nightmare happened. Uh, how he handled his crisis, I think everybody who's listening can take away tips uh, and nuggets of information of how to get through a crisis and how to handle it. Uh, you know, Brandon was, he had early success. He, he had a healthcare company uh, that he sold for multi-millions before the age of uh, 30. He's 29 years old. Uh, that that ended up getting a twisted nightmare that came back on him. And uh, he's written a book. It's called Looking Forward. And he did that while actually he was going through the process when even he was getting ready for his pre-sentencing report. Uh, but his, uh, his attitude is what really I thought, you know, captured me. I just thought it was just a, um, a great way that he handles himself now, how he handled himself through the crisis and, and what he was doing before. So Brandon, oh, I, I need to welcome our uh, sponsor in too. So um, before we get into all that with Brandon, Auto Plaza Direct, our sponsor. You know, who likes spending a couple weekends walking lots looking for a car? Then you spend a four to five hours in the dealership to buy a car. You know, it's kind of like going to a trip with a dentist. Well, there's a better way. Take away all the pain and hassle getting your car. It's called Auto Plaza Direct. They are your personal car concierge. Just tell them the car you want, what you can pay, and they'll find that car for you. They'll negotiate your best price. They'll deliver that car to you in any state. They also offer you warranties and financing. It's all full service. Go to autoplazadirect.com to get started with your personal car concierge. The new hassle-free way, the car buying experience you deserve. Auto Plaza Direct. Tell them that Brent from Nightmare Success sent you. Now we start with Brandon. Brandon, how you doing, man? 
I'm awesome, Brent. Thank you so much for having me, man. I appreciate it. And thank you for the nice, kind words and the warm intro. Well, I appreciate you being on. And, uh, you know, you have a fascinating story because, you know, it, and, and I want you to take us back a little bit, Brandon, if, you know, sure. because you're, you're kind of in two parts, but as you're, as you were growing up, can you kind of lead us back into what Brandon, what that life was like, your family life, siblings, all that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had, um, I had a really wonderful childhood. I have two amazing parents. I have great mentors and role models in my family. So pretty much all of my family members are small business owners and entrepreneurs. So my grandparents owned restaurants. I grew up in the back of restaurants, sweeping floors and washing dishes as a kid. My dad's a high-end home builder, and uh, basically all he would ever let me do is sweep floors. But um, <laughs> anyway, so I was always working these like odd jobs as a very young kid for my fa different family members' businesses. And I was always fascinated by the dialogue at our holiday dinners and just we were very family oriented um, family. And so we would spend a lot of time together and they're always talking about their businesses. And instead of kind of sitting with the, the kids, right, I always wanted to be with the adults having these, you know, big boy conversations about their companies and, and hearing about all the problems and then the interesting things that were going on. And um, I just grew up fascinated by it and was lucky enough that they would expose me to it. Uh, at a very early age. And so, um, you know, got that entrepreneurial bug pretty quick. And I think it's interesting too, was, Brandon, how when kids grow up with entrepreneurial parents or yeah. in that family, it's funny how that borns out entrepreneurial kids because they see it, they understand the risk part of it, they understand the rewards of it. It's it's You see it over and over again. Yeah, I couldn't imagine life any other way, and um, I'll, I won't get ahead. But it was kind of interesting how I developed as a young man as well throughout, you know, my my later teenage years and my early twenties, which I'll probably get to. But um, just yeah, really, really great time growing up. The only adversity that I really ever faced in my own my life was um, my sister was somebody who struggled deeply with uh, mental health and substance abuse. And so that started when I was started a little later in my life. I was probably about 17 or 18 years old when she was starting to go through it. So I was pretty much right off going to college at that point. But I started to see the change occur, started to see the stress and the change in my parents. And, um, you know, substance abuse is something that touches all of us. And I grew up in an area... I think we can all probably say this now, but I grew up in an area where it was really prevalent in high school. Um, you know, I had kind of friends and, and classmates who were overdosing and dying and you know, suicides and all this other stuff. And it was really, really difficult. And I was always wondering, like, why, why isn't anybody doing anything about this? This seems to be getting worse. I knew nothing about the landscape of treatment centers and what options were really available. Um, but I just remember seeing my parents like struggle through trying to find the right help and uh, how incredibly expensive it was, and all this other stuff. Anyway, so, um, yeah, so growing up was, was just wonderful. And I knew from a young age, like I said, you know, in those conversations with my family members, I always would be asking them, you know, kind of funny questions like, well, you know, why don't you guys go acquire another business? Or why don't you franchise your restaurants? <laughs> or, you know, why aren't you doing these, you know, Get 150, 200? 200 unit, you know, track home developments. And my, they would look at me and be like, Brandon, you're like 13 years old. Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? Right. 
Uh, you don't know what you're talking about. And so I would read, you know, I, I was a, a big reader. I still am. And I just would read about what all these other, you know, entrepreneurs and developers and folks were doing. And so I would go back to them and ask them those questions. And so, you know, I, I decided that they're, uh, you know, them shutting me down. I was like, well, fine, I'm going to go build big, big businesses. Then that's what I want to do. And the way that I thought you did that was to go through the, we'll call it the Wall Street route, which is, you know, kind of the investment banking, private equity world. Uh, and uh, there, I think there is some truth to that. Yeah. But uh, anyway, for me, I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of a cross between at this point in my life, I'm a cross between a corporate finance, like private equity trained type, as well as an entrepreneur. And so I think there's, there's an advantage to that combined skill set. Um, that I developed over the years. And so, you know, once I went off to school, that was, that was the route that I wanted to go. And I eventually battled my way into like, I'll call it management consulting, M&A advisory work for a small boutique group outside of Philadelphia, uh, focusing on biotech and pharmaceuticals. And then I eventually battled my way into private equity. So I didn't go to Harvard. I didn't graduate with a 4.0, right? It was very difficult for me to break into this world of private equity. So I ended up working for a, um, they're a very well-established firm, but they're, um, you know, they're not well-known. Um, they do a lot of real estate, like mm. tons of it. And then the other side of the business, they do uh, private business acquisitions. And so I worked on that side of the company, straight underneath the managing director. And so as a 24-year-old kid, you're getting exposure to, you know, companies that are, you know, making $25 million of EBITDA and you're, you know, you're behind the scenes. Yeah. You know, going to board meetings and, you know, talking to CEOs and um, cold calling CEOs to try to buy their companies. I mean, it's a really wild experience as a young man to be in those conversations when you you have no business even being in the room, right? <laughs> like, I'm a, I'm a knucklehead. Like, why did somebody, why did you let me in here? And, uh, but anyway, it's a, there's no better place, in my opinion, for uh, like a young person to develop their skill set. Uh, both the ability to, you know, articulate, you know, difficult concepts in a high pressure situation. Yeah. Uh, I've been, I've been kicked out of board meetings before. That was, that's maybe another story. Um, <laughs> and then also the, the ability to, you know, really have to build this certain level of like a ag mental agility because in private equity, you're like, okay, we've got a portfolio with like eight businesses in it. And you've got to be able to jump from this company to that company to that company, which could be in completely different industries, sectors, different problems. Yeah. And you have to be able to switch that like very quickly. And, um, and then on the acquisitions side, the ability to get up to speed on a business very, very fast and how it all works. Like you have, you know, 24 to 48 hours to kind of figure it out. And so it's just such a great training around my opinion for, for entrepreneurs. Um, and so, yeah, so, I then eventually was, uh, our firm was approached by a couple of executives from the healthcare space, substance abuse, and um, they wanted to go off. They, they turned around a treatment facility, or I guess it was a chain of treatment facilities. Uh, it was struggling and they kind of re revamped it, revived it, you know, brought in new staffing, um, you know, improved patient acquisition and all this other stuff. And they went to the owners of that group and said, Hey, we've like fixed your business here. Should we have some equity, please? And they said, no. So these gentlemen were off raising capital, uh, trying to do their own thing. And that's how we got put together. And the, the deal didn't work out with the firm, but they called me and said, Hey, Brandon, you know, you're young, sharp guy, you know, would you potentially have interest in, in helping us raise the rest of this capital? 
And um, if you're successful in doing so, we would be willing to give you, you know, bring you in as a partner, an equal partner, so you'd have a third of the company. That's a big and, deal, Brandon. What? How old were you at that point? <laughs> yeah. I was 26 years old. Yeah, 26. I mean, you know, and it's funny too because I I was in your yeah. shoes at that point, and at 25, 26, it you you think that I think there's something that's happens like when you're when you get into that rhythm and flow and you start seeing the behind the scenes stuff and then you start seeing things that can grow you think you can do anything and you know that at that age yeah. i'm sure you thought you had seen enough at you know 25 26 years old hell yes i need to be in here i've earned my way to this spot i i can do this and i can do that and i'm really good at sales absolutely yeah that, that's a fact. There's actually something interesting. I remember saying to who uh, my now my wife, uh, I, when I got into private equity, I was like, I thought that I would be more impressed. Like I thought <laughs> it was going to be. It, I mean, it's definitely high level. Sure. I'm not saying it's not, but yeah. I, I was I was ready for you know conversations. I couldn't understand anything people were talking about, and I was keeping up pretty well. And after a few years, I was like, man, I could do I like could what do these this. guys do. Yeah. I could totally do this. And so, you know, this, when that opportunity presented itself for, to, to me, I was like, wow, this is, this is my moment to sort of, you know, kind of quench that thirst for entrepreneurship yeah. and then also apply my, you know, I'll call it my corporate development skills, um, you know, on the private equity and fundraising side. And so, uh, you know, this is, this is like my moment. I felt like it was a moment for me. And, and it was a moment to do some good, right? I, I've explained, you know, kind of the, the challenges that I've, I've faced, you know, both uh, with substance abuse and, and mental health and my family and, you know, a lot of people that I know. So I was like, wow, I can, this is going to be an opportunity to do some good out there and to, you know, kind of step into this entrepreneurial, um, you know, version of myself. And so we were, we were quite successful. We went out and we raised, uh, raised all the money we needed. And when we were off and running and they had a whole team ready to go and we basically just poached all the, all the A players and, you know, we were, we were off to the races. And so, you know, built a business up over a period of about, um, I'll call it like 18 months. That's fast. And at the, at the end of 18 months, we had an offer from a private equity firm for $45 million. Um, and yeah, in a very short period of time. And, and it was like, wow, this thing's not even, we're not even, we didn't even think about selling this thing. Right. right. But the, we hit it just at the point where private equity became very acquisitive. Um, and it's, it, that industry is now a darling of private equity, but this was a little earlier on in that cycle. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, they, there were a lot of guys out there just, you know, snapping up firms and we were so young that I didn't think anybody would find it attractive. Uh, but they did. They did. We had a few offers and ended up taking another one, not that one. It was uh, an offer for about 60, just under $67 million. And so that deal closed in uh, December of 2017, December 11th. Yeah, I was 29. 29 years old. So what's going through your mind now, Brandon? You've, you've conquered something that most people don't conquer when they're, you know, 60 years old or ever. Um, yeah. What, what are you thinking in your mind at this point? Well, I'm thinking, man, now I can finally get started. Um, <laughs> I'm serious. I, I, I remember calling now my I got dad. Some walking around money to really build something. I, I, that's exactly right. I was like, you know, wait till I wait till you see what I build. And I remember calling my dad and he's like, look, just go slow. Like 
slow and steady. Like you, you don't have to prove anything to anyone, right? Like you, we all know you're capable. And so I go off and I uh, co-founded a real estate development company called Captiva Capital Partners. We were doing, um, you know, class A self-storage projects yeah, uh, in Philadelphia and, and Florida. We did really well. We developed probably about, all, if you add them all up, probably about $40 million in projects. Uh, in our first year, we did Philadelphia's largest class A self-storage facility that was sold to CubeSmart. Um, did a couple deals down in Florida. Those were sold off as well. I also was in the pride. I bought another business. Um, and then I was in the process of buying a, another company, a labeling company. Um, they label like food package product, products and things okay. like that and pharmaceuticals. And so I was on the eve of closing that deal. And, you know, the, I just, you know, got a, all the financing in place. Like we were ready to go. And, and I could have probably flipped this business for five. I had it under agreement for three. I probably could have flipped it for five or six pretty quickly. Um, if I wanted to. And right about on the eve of closing, I find out um, that I'm going to be indicted. I get this phone call from my lawyer. I'm in my real estate development office and I get a call and he says, Brandon, I have some, some terrible, horrible news. You know, the government has decided, you know, that they're going to take a, a firm position here. They want to make an example out of your case and pretty much everybody involved. And, you know, you were the, CFO, you uh, also are a you know educated, articulate, you know intelligent individual, and they know that, and you're quite the trophy. And so that was it. How long you know, in a phone call? How long did you have Brandon in that process of knowing that they started to look? Because as as we all know, it, it when it starts out, it doesn't seem like much to it, and then you know. It, it, and then sometimes you, you, I've talked to so many guys where they say, well, it almost seems like they forgot about it. And then they get the phone call. Yeah. What, what was your, what was your process like? Mine was, my, I've heard like horror stories. Like it takes like five years for them to do anything. Ours moved relatively quickly. So we'd heard some rumblings of, we'll call it like an investigation prior to even the transaction. And the buyers were aware of this. Okay. So nothing was ever hidden from the buyers. There were no issues with the transaction whatsoever. The issues were, uh, you know, operational in nature. And <clears throat> so we had heard some things about it. We had some lawyers do some digging and nobody could really find anything out. Like, hey, this is probably nothing. They haven't moved. No, no subpoenas were issued at that point. So that was pretty much it. We kind of said, okay, well, we, you know, we've done what we had to do. We disclosed everything to everybody. And, um, as far as we can tell, we had the most expensive healthcare lawyers in Philadelphia you could find. They're like, yeah, I mean, everything's fine. So great. Anyway, so we just, we just move on. And, um, then after the transaction closed, probably six months or so, uh, we, we got, uh, our first subpoenas and what they started to do was they were interviewing employees first and they went in and you know subpoenaed probably 20 employees and nobody really mentioned me the uh i wasn't brought up until the end um when they interviewed uh, my uh, she was the director of our billing department somebody that reported to me and when they asked her who she reports to she said my name and apparently they um their response was well who's that yeah. <laughs> and so that was how my name got thrown into the ring um, and, you know, she obviously had, she was under oath. She had to explain who I was and what I did and all that stuff. Sure. And so, um, yeah, so that was it. And then I would say probably 
and this is probably 2018 now. So I would say about a year later is when, um, and then I was also then subpoenaed shortly thereafter, maybe a couple months. And then you know, within a year, yeah, that was when the indictment came down. What was your thought when you got that call from the attorney? My life is over. Um, you know, everything I've built, my re- I had a wonderful reputation. You know, I literally like, and I'm not saying this to try to like relive the past, but it's just true. Um, you know, they would call me boy wonder around the office, like in private equity. And I would literally have these private equity guys sitting me down, introducing me to people like as Brandon, like, Hey, you got to know this kid. He's a future billionaire. Like you, you, you just really got to get to know him. And, yeah. and I like that filled you up for sure. That mattered to me. That's what I was getting at. Is yeah. That built my ego up into something that was so fragile because I identified myself as all of those things, you know, smart, intelligent, capable, successful, mm-hmm. you know, wealthy, all this other, all this stuff that I thought was important and is to an extent, but I had overvalued that and I had placed all of my worth in those things. Mm-hmm. And so when all of that crumbled, you asked me, you know, how did I feel? I, I, I felt like I was nothing. I felt like I, I suddenly like, and, yeah. and it, it happened like that. Right. And I don't know how, how it was for you, but it was just all of a sudden it was gone. And I, in a, in that moment, I, I went into my partner's offices and I, I, I resigned from our real, I, I relinquished all my equity. Um, I just said, look, just, you know, write me a check for what I have into it. And you guys keep the, keep the upside. We had big institutional capital. I didn't want anything to come back to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, all my other businesses, I resigned from, uh, deals that I was, that were in process got shut down. So immediately I went from a guy going, you know, a hundred miles an hour, like really like enterprise kingdom building, if you will, like mm-hmm. building real enterprise value to a guy sitting on his couch feeling sorry for himself like that, that like, like a light switch. Is your, at that point, uh, relationship wise, uh, you mm-hmm. weren't, you weren't married then, right? At that point, but you, you do, that was, I was. You were I had just gotten, I, I just gotten married to my wife and she knew, and as soon as we got subpoenaed, I told her something like something funny was up Yeah. and all of the lawyers that I talked to said, Brandon, like you're probably fine. Mm-hmm. Like we can't really see anything necessarily that ties you all that well to this situation from what we know they're looking at. But again, like you, like you said, some of the other folks have mentioned like, you don't really know a whole lot. They don't tell you much. And so eventually we found out that, you know, that advice was not correct. And, but my wife knew she, she knew that this was possible. I told her straight up. I said, look, I was the CFO of this company. If you look at any active investigations that have a result, CFO is always part of it somehow. And so, um, you know, I could be fit. We could be facing a difficult challenge here. And she said, I don't care. Um, I'll go through whatever we have to with you. So, well, and I think you bring up a good point there too, because in in the world of taking titles, you know, the, a lot of people don't understand that when you take on those titles, when when a federal yeah. investigation comes you're, the the way that it does, like a tidal wave, whether you know or don't know, you're in a responsible position to know. So, your, your intent doesn't necessarily mean. Um, that I, you know, willfully intentionally did this, you were in the position that you were supposed to know. And so it's, um, that can be a really confusing time period. Cause you know, I, I look back at, at our situation and, and absolutely there was a lot of things that I 
should have known because I I enjoyed the position I was in. I liked the big title, but there was a lot of laziness in my part of not doing what I needed to do wholly in, in my position. So that that's one of those things that you really don't really um, <laughs> I don't know, you learn that on the job once you get indicted that you know it's getting that really fancy title also comes with a lot of uh, liability if things come the other way. That's a, that's a fact. And I did not even realize that a little bit. And I had, you know, I think more training than most do, you know, coming from the private equity world about, you know, kind of we'll call it corporate responsibility, but I, I didn't fully appreciate it. And I also was somebody who struggled deeply with imposter syndrome. Uh, I think some of that was due to my, my age um, but also I think I just, uh, you know, a part of me, and this is getting maybe a little, a little too deep into the, the psychology of it, but you know, just growing up in the shadow of a highly successful father, right. You know, you're constantly wanting to impress that person, you know, and feeling, uh, inferior. And so when I was in the situation that I was, I found myself in that I didn't, I had put myself there, right. I did it intentionally partnering with these guys. I, I, caved, I think, in certain situations where I could have questioned more, I could have pushed sure. harder, I could have held a firmer line. And instead, I just said, Okay, yeah, I trust you. I believe you like, yeah, I got you. I'll back you up on whatever. And like, I did that. I said, I said those things. And so, you know, at the end of the day, I was forced to take accountability for it. And I did. And I do. And I'm much wiser as the result of all of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, but I think here's what I think is really interesting about there's a lot of things interesting about your story, Brandon. But I thought when you found out yeah. and, and how you found out, a lot of times um, people go into like a fetal position and it all just kind of swims over the top of them. I thought what you did was interesting from how you handled your crisis because um, – you know, one of the things with Justin wanting you to be incorporated into our email is, is that how you handled that was a lot of what he talks about too. But you went active and started taking action against what can I do to for mitigation for myself um, yeah. in a situation where I know that there's going to be an outcome where I'm indicted, I'm probably going to do a plea, and how do I best make that happen. It's, can you walk us through how your whole thought process was on that? I think it's just helpful for yeah, anybody that's going through a crisis. hundred percent. I think it applies to, you know, any, any sort of moment of adversity that, that people face in life, not just this situation, but I, I wasn't strong immediately. I, I had, like I said, I ended up as a guy sitting on my couch for, yeah. for about three weeks and I just was sulking, you know, the, the whole, the poor me role, yeah. the, you know, why is this happening? I don't deserve this. Not fair. You know, all this self-talk yeah. that we have very, very selfish, you know, kind of thought process. And, um, I remember just sitting there going, I'm 31 years old. What the, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Like yeah. I have theoretically like a long road ahead and, I was consuming a lot of alcohol. Uh, I was self-medicating badly. I was, you know, out of shape. I just, uh, my, my whole world had kind of fallen apart and I'd allowed myself to go with it. Mm -hmm. 
And eventually I got to the point where, you know, I was sitting there one day and I said, I, I can't do this for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. I have to make a choice. And in that moment, I just decided that I needed a big objective. I needed a big target and a big promise to hit. And so I said, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I'll figure it out. Um, and I'm going to take this moment, right? This, this awful event in my life. And I'm going to find a way to take the energy from this thing and apply that energy towards something good. And I'm going to do it in a way that lifts up the spirits of people that I interact with. I love that. And this was like my big, my big scary why, right? Yeah. And I, I made that promise. Well, I verbalized it. I said to my wife, like this, I'm doing this for us, for you, and for myself. Mm -hmm. And that if at any point I, I falter here, I need you to really hold me accountable. And that was it. I'd, um, I'd reached out and I'd gotten support. I found mentorship uh, from individuals who battled through the situation that I was going through. I've always found success in finding people who have done the thing you want to do or something very similar and done it successfully and go learn as much as you can from them. So I did that. And I started to give back. I did, uh, did a speaking engagement at a university. I wrote a, I wrote a book. I wrote a little uh, self-directed course along with that book and then licensed it to a company called Prison Professors. And then they, uh, they provide educational material to prisons and jails around the country. And so my material, which was, it was interesting timing because as you said earlier in the interview, I was still going through the process. Mm -hmm. But so I was still learning how I was dealing with struggle, but all I did was document how I was doing it and my, my thought process. Mm -hmm. And um, so anyway, my material was already being disseminated, you know, before I ever went away and was already like benefiting people. So I had gotten some quick wins within probably six months. I'd really taken some, some positive steps. I also immediately uh, like really poured myself into physical exercise. I got a therapist. I, um, I tried to slow my drinking down, which I did semi-successfully. Um, but yeah, it was it was really like a reinvention of myself, if you well, look I, at it. And I think it's, you know, we got two entrepreneurs here talking to each other, so <laughs> I don't want to get too far <laughs> into the weeds. But I, I think yeah. one of the things that, you know, I love to hear, and it, because it, it always is right, at your lowest point, you chose survivor instead of victim. And at the at that point you set a goal. So putting yourself on the map again, you know, you, you that yeah. goal gave you a destination and then you sought out mentors that were people that really give you the answers to the test before the test. And, and that's something that an entrepreneur earn, learns early on. Who's doing yeah. this? Who's, who's getting this? And let me talk to them so that I don't have to reinvent my wheel here. I'm just going to do what they do because that'll give me confidence that it works. So you did those things at your lowest point. And yeah. as far as um, your connection that you made with, um, with Justin and then, and then with Mike Santos, was that just searching the internet? Like, were you just checking out what, what's out there? Yeah. Who, who could help me? I, I told my wife, actually, I said, Hey, I found this guy on the internet. And, uh, and he's got a like lot of followers, by the way. That's how I, f he's, he's got a ton. He's got hundreds of thousands of followers. He's, I think he's on the, TikTok. those guys are the, 
they're the best in the country. I mean, like hands down, no question, they're they're rock stars, um, and they they're wonderful people to work with. And I told my wife, I said, I found this guy on the internet um, <laughs> who I think might be helpful, and she's like, like, what are you talking about, right? And, and you don't you don't need that. You're going to be fine. Yeah. You know, like we're still sort of telling ourselves some internet that story. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so I waited. And my biggest regret to this day was actually like that I waited that long. I yeah. wish I had brought him in sooner um, because just the, the support, as I said, in the mentorship, what that does for your personal development and your mental health to have somebody who is speaking from a position of experience yeah. to guide you through. And I, I, I talk about this in my own content now and my clients, like I, the value of mentorship is so important. It's huge. And so for me, I just wish that I brought them in sooner, but yeah, I found them on the internet and they were, um, they're wonderful and they're, they're both good friends to this day. So Brandon, you, you're going through this process. Your, your wife is, is going through this with you, which I also think is a huge deal because it gives you somebody to bounce things as you're going through and, and um, you know, an ear, um, when did you start hearing from your attorney, what they were going to do and prison time and all that as you like what did it just continue to work its way because i i think i remember you saying there were they were talking about a lot of time to begin with and it, yeah, it started they, working itself down i don't know if that was before your psr after but the, you you continued so to get yourself into a better position it was a weird situation because it started out as a state case and then the federal government had originally passed on it and then they decided, uh, well, you know, if you're going to pursue it, we yeah. don't, we don't want to, you know, get outshined here. So, um, that's pretty much what happened. And so I was charged at the state level initially when I got that phone call, that was, I was charged at the state level. And so we were like, we actually, we got a good judge and we were like, you know what, like we might want to take a shot here at the state level. And then basically what happened was the federal government said, I hadn't been charged at the federal level. The state charges were, you know, the list was quite long, but um, anyway, it, it always starts out that way. Mm -hmm. And so we were, we were on the eve of trial, like ready to go. And my lawyer's like, um, you know, Brandon, you might want to consider a plea deal, uh, you know, half a million dollars in legal fees later. I wish you had told me that <laughs> earlier, but uh, anyway, you know, he, he, the whole time, this is what they do. He's telling you, you know, you, oh, yeah, we got a great chance, you know, good case, you know, wonderful character, great background. It's going to be a, a good story to tell. And I'm like, okay, I trust you. Um, and then on the eve of trial, he says, you might want to consider a plea deal. You're a young guy. And oh, by the way, we don't know what the federal government is going to charge you with, but if they match the state charges, you know, they're going to add up real quick. You mm -hmm. could end up, you know, in the 10 to 15 year range and like, wait, what did you just say? Yeah, that's a decade. Right? Yeah. yeah. And he's like, I don't want to see you do that. And I was like, no, I, oh, thank you. Of course not. Right. Like, and so I, I had to have that conversation with my wife and say, look, like this is, this is where this could go mm -hmm. if they decide to penalize us. And basically the, the position the federal government had, had taken when we told them we were right, we were willing to actually go to trial. They said, that's great. Like, go ahead we're going to be in the audience watching your state case. And regardless of if you win or lose, we're going to be standing outside the courtroom ready to charge you when you're done. Mm. And I was like, Oh boy. Right. So we could end up fighting the same case twice and they have all your ammunition. Right. 
So we were, we were checkmated at that point. And so we went to them and said, fine, you know, we'll, we'll consider a deal. And, you know, that was when they came back. Wasn't much of a negotiation. They said 37 months, $3.1 million fine. We went back and said, look, I'll, you know, I'll take a misdemeanor and I'll, I'll be willing to do jail time for in exchange for a misdemeanor. They said, absolutely not. Um, the whole, we tried everything and they just, they just stood there, they dug their heels in and that was it. And what, I sat down with the, my wife. Uh, what was the charge that came against you with Brandon? One, one count of conspiracy to commit health care fraud. Yeah. And it was like, can't remember what section it is anymore, but it's like the lowest one. It carries a five year cap. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it's still, it's still, still felony. It's still yeah. got teeth. Yeah. 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 Yep. So you, um, you, you settle on that, you go and you go to your sentencing hearing. Do you pretty much know that that's, that's the deal on both sides? It was a C plea. Okay. Yeah. So uh, for anybody listening, a C plea is when you're basically the both sides have negotiated a deal already. Uh, typically it's a range, <clears throat> but this was like an actual number. All the numbers were negotiated and we, the agreement was they will not negotiate for more, which typically the prosecution argues for the highest possible sentence. And then the defense argues for the lowest. The judge usually ends up somewhere in the middle. Um, in this case, basically both sides went in. We're not going to negotiate at all. We're both in agreement that this is it. The judge would either agree or disagree with the uh, the deal and, and stamp it. And in that case, she did. Mm-hmm. So. And at this time, I can't remember. I think we talked about this before you got on, but your pre-sentencing report was a, was a big, I think, key in, in your um, – the process because I think – the way that you went about that and the connection that you made with your uh, pre-sentencing report officer, probably because yeah. that's, that's something, you know, I don't know if the judges read the letters. I hope they do, but I know that they probably take a look at that pre-sentencing report. And mm-hmm. um, a lot of, you and I were talking about this, Brandon is a lot of attorneys, even if they're really, really good attorneys, some of the best defense attorneys, they don't know anything about, what happens with this pre-sentencing report and how that becomes your Bible and then what happens after that and then how that affects your case manager, how do you get jobs in prison, how do you get out earlier, all those things really stem from that pre-sentencing report. So what you were talking about earlier, and I can't remember if we were talking before this or, or we were talking in the interview, but getting your narrative in there about who you are and you're not this one thing, you are so many things leading up to this is so key to letting you be a human being and, and not what just the, uh, you know, the federal government's trying to sting you with. It was huge. It was, it was absolutely massive. And my lawyer basically said prior to that meeting, maybe a, a couple weeks ahead of time, knowing that it was coming up and being about to be scheduled. He said, yeah, it's no big deal. It should take, you know, 10, <clears throat> 15 minutes you know, just be yourself. He's going to ask you a couple of questions. And then that's that. It's nothing really to worry about. Okay. And then, you know, fortunately I had good advisors and they were like, that's, that's not, not true. true. <laughs> this is the most important thing probably that you're going to do prior to your sentencing. Yeah. And so we, I was very prepared I uh, had already had a draft manuscript of my book and the work that I was doing, the, the coursework that I was developing at the time. It wasn't completed, 
but I brought a manuscript of everything with me to my PSR and, or uh, to my presenting interview, excuse me. And, um, he absolutely, the, the, the officer, my, my pretrial officer like loved it. He was, you know, very, um, he was willing to give me time to explain my story and to talk to him about, you know, my objective from the start was always to help people. And I'm not going to let this situation deter that objective. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just now going to be forced to help people in a different way than I had originally expected to do so. Right. And from a, from a different context. And so, you know, he really, that, I think that message resonated with him. And I also shared, you know, all my upbringing and background and sure. story and, marriage and everything. And we had a really long conversation. It ended up being like two hours long, yeah, right? 10, or 15 10, minutes. To 15, <laughs> 10 to 15 minutes. Right. So it was a really, really long conversation. The PSR came back uh, great, made recommendations for, um, you know, for RDAP and, and other programs and uh, really like wished me well along the way and mm-hmm. actually stayed in touch with me throughout the process. And, you know, it said to me, he said, Brandon, you know, there's like very few people, you know, come through this situation and, and are willing to take the same approach that you have. And you have clearly have a gift for, you know, trying to help others and, and you have great education and experience and all this other stuff. He's like, share that gift when you're there, right? right. There's a lot of people that would benefit from that. And so I, I stuck to that and I did, I did all of those things. I was, I volunteered in the GED department. I taught guys how to read an interesting thing teaching grown men how to read um and i taught uh, entrepreneurship classes i taught uh, let's, financial let's literacy talk, courses Brandon, let's, ta- let's talk about that because i mean there yeah there's nothing like a voluntary s- surrender at the gates of wherever you're going and yeah i've if I remember right, you went to a low instead of a camp, and 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 there's a big difference. Um, now I was ele- I was at Leavenworth, so we did have the fence and the razor wire and all that because it was supposed to be a low and didn't get accredited, so they just kept it, you know, looking that way. But you actually went to a low, and there's a lot less freedom. Like you know, I would get out and walk to the food warehouse a mile and a half every day beyond the fenced area. And in a low, you you have scheduled moves um, yeah. on the hour, every hour, and it's a different different environment. I, w- the day of, can you kind of walk me through the day of being there? Absolutely. Yeah, so my, my first day, I surrender. My wife walks in with me. I walk up to the to the front gates and um, I write, I'm working on a new book and I write this this whole experience in, in great detail. And when you pull up to a, a prison that you're about to walk into, the only thing that I can, I can attribute it to, particularly if you're someone like me, I've never been in any trouble. I've never been in jail, never been in the back of a police car, never been in handcuffs. Like I, yeah. this is a terrifying moment. Yeah. It's, it's sort of like facing your executioner mm-hmm. is the way that I've explained it to people. Yeah. I think your, your body's like kind of triggering the exact same, you know, fight or flight response. Mm-hmm. And so you walk up and it's, it's the full on deal. There's, you know, turrets and, you know, double razor wire fencing, razor wire on the ground, razor wire up high. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a woman's prison right across the street. So there were like women like yelling at me while I was like <laughs> going into the facility. And I, I, uh, I kissed my wife for the last time and they start like cheering and yelling and stuff. It was just, it was quite the experience. So I walk in and they, they were actually quite respectful. Um, you know, go through processing <clears throat> the, um, 
everybody warned me of the, uh, you know, the squat and cough, right? So I go in and they you know, strip, you, you know, strip everything down. You're there just kind of butt naked. And the guy's over in the other room picking out your shoes and your clothes, which don't fit. And um, he comes back and I'm like, all right, this is it. I know what's coming next. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so I'm like, I kind of like start to like bend over and I like end up in this like weird squat, like CrossFit position. And he sees what I'm doing and he's like, no, 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 don't do that. And I'm like, what? And so I like, I freeze. He didn't ask me to do anything. I'm just so nervous <laughs> that like, I just started to like, you know, show my ass off. Uh-huh. And uh, he's like, no, 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 stop. And he's like, and he goes, show me the bottom of your feet. And I was like, what? Show- Are you supposed to be like looking uh, in my ass right now? Right. That- I didn't want to remind him. Right. But anyway, so I lifted up my feet. And I got through without the squat and cough. Wow. I'm like the first person I'd ever met that's actually gotten through that wow. situation. So anyway, uh, that <laughs> happens and uh, finally get dressed. And, you know, I've got, you know, pants that are like, you know, up to my knees. It was just, it's just a wild experience. And um, they, because I went in during COVID, they sent me straight to quarantine, which that's, is. That's what I wanted you to talk about, because I can't imagine that type of entrance and I, I think you're the first person I've talked to that went through at, at COVID, but they put you, when they, you say they put you in quarantine, that means that you were put in solitary confinement. I was put in shoe. Yeah. That's, that's straight out of the gate. That is unbelievable. How long were you in there? 22 straight days. That's a long time for somebody that just like hours ago, kissed their wife at the gate and thought you were <laughs> walking into whatever your life was going to be. And then you go into the hole changed me yeah yeah it's uh it's a wild wild experience i remember the like that not the sound it makes but the finality of the deadbolt yeah when it locks behind you and you're like there's no it's a heavy door and it's a heavy deadbolt and it's like man there's like how did my life end up like this right how did i end up here is like where you start to go and you're like, I can't get out of this room. Mm-hmm. Like, there's nothing I can scream, I can yell, I can kick the doors, I can do whatever I want. Nothing I can do to get out of here. And it's like, it's. Well, it's I remember you intense. said you had a little claustrophobia going in, so that didn't. Oh yeah, I couldn't. Help. Yeah, I couldn't. Couldn't get into elevators. I couldn't. Uh, you know, I didn't like tight spaces. I would get anxiety attacks on airplanes and all this other stuff. So like, I went into that environment and I dug deep. Right. And you get to a point, I think it's a Bob Marley quote, but like you get to, a, uh, you know, you dig deep enough and all you can find left is strength or something along those lines. And, um, I had to just, I had to find it. I had to just find that strength. And what I did was I would think of guys like Michael and, um, you know, some of the other folks that I knew that had gone through solitary, like extended periods of solitary. And I just kept telling myself, look, if they can get through it and they're alive and they're doing well today, I will get through this. Mm-hmm. And I would just repeat that over and over and over again in my head uh, until I believed it. <laughs> yeah. And I would, uh, I would do lots of physical activity. So the way I would sort of distract myself at first was I would read and every chapter I would drop to the floor. I would get a workout in, I would walk back and forth as much as I could, you know, look at, look out the window a little bit. I mean, but it was nasty. Uh, we're in, you know, July. Uh, so it's summer, no air conditioning, the window opens about that much mm-hmm. and they let you out maybe every two or three days for a shower. And it's like 20 minutes 
and I had no, they didn't give me anything. I had no utensils. I was eating with my ID card. Um, I had no towel. The towel they give you is like a washcloth. Uh-huh. So I would like have to, you know, clean myself, no shower shoes. Um, no I mean, shower shoes, no shower. And everybody loses their mind when I say that. Um, I, I, I did what I could with what I had. Uh, but it was, it was really hard, but at the end of it, I walked out of that and was like, well, I just did the hardest possible yeah, thing you did. I could do. So <laughs> everything else is downhill from here. Yeah. Exactly. That's what everybody said. They're like, you, you've never been to prison and they just shoved you into solitary like that. And I was like, yeah, and they're like, you're going to be fine. So how was, the rest how was life? How was life, Brandon, once you did get out? Uh, out of, out of, out of the, out of solitary into the prison world. It was, it was interesting. So I did, uh, I was moved from my journey was crazy. And I'll, I'll, if we have the time, I'll share all of it. But like, so 22 days in solitary, then I moved to general population, which is like a dormitory. And that is a different way of living, right? Once you get used to solitary, it's not so bad. Mm -hmm. Cell life is actually better than dorm life, in my opinion, having done both. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you get in the dorms and it's, there's an etiquette to follow. I got the worst bunk. I got the bunk right by the bathroom. Um, you know, I got the, the, the bunk mate below who was challenging. And so I just tried to keep a, keep to myself, read my books, exercise like a, like a maniac. Mm-hmm. And, um, that earned me a lot of respect. I would just like, I would go right up to the guys working out hard and I would be like, look, just let me jump in. Just let me keep up. And I would beat a lot of them. And so, you know, that really helped me earn some respect in the community. And I ended up, you know, becoming buddies with a lot of those guys. And just because we had, we were united by the common interest of exercise. And so that really got me through in a lot of different ways, both socially and just mentally for myself. So I was there for maybe a couple of weeks and then I was admitted to the RDAP unit. And that's where the real rules. Yeah, where the real rules live. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so for COVID protocol, though, every time you switched, you went in the facility, the, the overall prison, uh, or out of the facility, or if you switched units, mm-hmm. you had to do quarantine. Oh, man. So I went right back into quarantine again. God. And I did another, I think I did, this one was shorter. It was like 20 days or 22, 21 days. A little bit shorter that time. But I had a bunk mate this time. I wasn't alone. Okay. Which is actually worse because if you imagine <laughs> you know imagine locking yourself in a, in closet. a bathroom yeah with yeah or a closet with another man mm-hmm. for a long time for three weeks yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's weird yeah. right like you know you got people going to the bathroom and like right next to each other it's disgusting yeah. it's, it's crazy so um yeah it was it was quite the experience but then i get over to rdap and that was a different different world i I assimilated pretty quickly. I decided that I was going to invest a hundred percent in the program and that I was going to become a leader of the community. And I did. Um, and I did it not like through, you know, brute force or trying to be a tough guy. I wasn't trying to pretend to be something that I wasn't. I did it from the perspective of, I just want to bring value to this community and I want to help these guys who want to do better to actually do better and to share what I had with them. And so I approached everybody with the same level of respect. And, and I think it earned me a lot of support in the community. And so I was, you know, fortunate enough to be in a leadership position very early on. 
Um, and I, like I said, I, I hosted regular workshops on financial literacy and investments and entrepreneurship and Did the guys like that mindset. Did the guys like loved it? Yeah. It's, they it's, loved it. Oh yeah. I would get shout outs in the community all the time. Like, man, you, you put on this amazing workshop. I learned so much. Thank you for doing that. I, w- I would get that all the time. Yeah. But it, for me, it was, it was rewarding because when I would talk to, to a lot of these guys, I became friendly with them and learned about their past and their struggles and the things that they faced in life. Like I grew up in a, I had an amazing upbringing. Some of these guys that I met had really horrible tough stories. Yeah. like really, really, really a tragic stories. Mm-hmm. And so when you would, I would sit down with them one-on-one and we would have really good conversations and you learn that all they want to do is just be able to support their family and, yeah. and try to be better men, yeah. but they don't know how they've had no, there's never been any sort of men, positive mentorship or leadership in their life. Yeah. So they were taught to, to deal drugs in a lot of cases at, you know, like 10 years old. Yeah. And so it's, uh, they're kind of screwed from the start. And what I tried to do was just share with them that, you know, that, that life is not sustainable. Right. And I learned how much money you can make dealing drugs. They would tell me, and I'm like, holy shit, man. Yeah. Like, it's, it's really incredible. And that's what's so tempting to them. Sure. I can make, I can make a hundred grand in a weekend or whatever it is. Why am I going to go work for $12 an hour. Why would I do that? And I'm like, look, man, you make a lot of money, but it doesn't count because you're going to get caught and you're going to end up in prison and every stretch is going to get longer and longer and you're never going to be able to take care of your family. So honest work is good work. Mm-hmm. And um, so I would just try to share these lessons with them, but also show them that, you know, that entrepreneurship can be a very freeing thing financially yeah. and can put you in a position to be able to support your family and become a millionaire. And I would break down the basically compound interest math, I would do it on the whiteboard for them. And I would show them, I'm like, every man in this room, if they dedicate themselves to honest, good work, you start a small business, Mm -hmm. eventually build it up to the point where you're earning six figures a year. It's very doable. Um, You can be a millionaire in your lifetime Mm -hmm. and you can build and share generational wealth with the people that you love and you can do it in a way that's sustainable and honest. And so I think a lot of guys resonated with that when I would share that message with them and like show them exactly that it was possible. And yeah, it was, it was just super rewarding. And I still do that work today. I'm an entrepreneurship coach for a group called Inmates to Entrepreneurs. And so they teach, um, you know, formerly incarcerated individuals how to build and start I love that. and grow companies, uh, you know, for less than a thousand dollars. So it's a lot of, you know, uh, you know, home maintenance, you know, landscaping, cleaning businesses, yeah. like stuff that's easy, you know, pretty low, low CapEx to start. <clears throat> so, um, it's just, it's incredibly rewarding work. And then I, you know, do it. I monetize this, essentially the same skill set through my coaching programs. And so it's through all of this negativity, I found a deeper part of myself mm-hmm. that I didn't know existed. I didn't know that I was a teacher. I didn't know that I, I made a good coach. I didn't know that I could lead people in, in my darkest moment, mm-hmm. lead people who are you know tougher than me, who are from worse backgrounds. Yeah. I did it from a place of love. That's yeah. all it was. I just wanted to try to help and do better. That's great. I love that. It. So Brandon, walk me through, you get, you get done with your, um, your RDAP program mm-hmm. for those, those, the, the RDAP program is really the only program in the federal system where you can earn time off a year or it depends on what, you know, what the facility is. Sometimes it's nine months. A lot of times it's a year, but 
it's a pretty hardcore program, nine months of, you know, really adhering yeah. to, you know, it's, it's behavioral thinking, uh, why you do what you do and all the different things that, that are related to that rational, uh, rational thinking behaviors. But it's, uh, if taught properly, it, pro- it should probably be taught in schools. I mean, it's, it's uh, something that it's an excellent program. makes sense. So you're getting close to the door, Brandon. You know, and everybody gets a little bit nervous with that because you kind of get into this world of prison and then you know that you're getting to the door and then, you know, what's changed, what's going on out here? What what was going through your mind? So believe it or not, and it's funny you said that, like everybody gets nervous. I I was afraid to leave. I kind of felt a little guilty for leaving, which is a not a feeling I expected. Yeah. Right. Because and I'm sure, you know, people who are listening are probably like, yeah, you're crazy. It's a weird thing that happens. You adjust, you get used to it, you build relationships, you build a routine and you get you get comfortable again. Right. And, you know, the the mind is an amazing ability to adapt. And so you adapt to your surroundings and then you're going to have to reenter the world. And that thought can get a little crazy because mm-hmm. it's like, okay, well, in prison, it's easy. I don't have to think about what I'm going to do next. I'm told when I'm going to move. I'm told what to wear. I'm told when I'm going to eat, yeah. told what I'm going to eat, right? I don't think yeah. about anything except really myself. Yeah. And, you know, what book am I going to read? And when, when am I going to work out? And, <laughs> you know, what, what am I going to write about today, right? Yeah. Like, these are all positive things, but all of a sudden you're, you're going to have to go back to being an accountable human mm-hmm. and that shift in, in your mindset is, is tricky. So I did actually get a little bit nervous, but uh, I had a release plan already built. I had, you know, kind of my next few years of my life already laid out and mm-hmm. what I wanted to accomplish. So I, I just went back to my plan and, and uh, really was, was ready to get focused, but it was definitely a weird feeling. It was a really weird feeling, but also I felt grateful and I didn't want to complain because, you know, I did technically, I did 10 and a half, 11 months on 37 month sentence. So I was the beneficiary of a lot of good luck along the way. And a lot of people would have killed to be in my place. Right. So I didn't, I don't want to sound ungrateful, uh, but it was, it's just a weird emotion that happens when you're at the end of your sentence. It is. There's a, there's a, um, a line in Shawshank Redemption where Red's telling Andy, he said, you look at these walls and when you first get here, you see that they're to, uh, to keep you in. And he said, when, after you look at them for a while and you've been here longer, he said, they're like the arms that hug you for comfort. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's a weird phenomenon, but I think it's because you get into these crazy routines um, and you, the reason I think you get in routines is you want to be in control of something when you really don't have control of anything, but, um, there are hardcore, you know, set routines, you know, they're going to turn the lights off at 10 o'clock and that's all there is. But, um, when you got out, tell, walk me through how, your life now and what, 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 cause you haven't been out that long, Brandon, and you've accomplished a lot. Yeah. How, how did, how did you reenter the world and what was life like when friends and family and all that? I mean, my life today is amazing. Um, I'm just uh, like blown away. I'm grateful and blessed. And it's just uh, the fact that I, I'm, I am where I am right now having this conversation with you when I was, you know, just a few years ago, a couple of, not even a couple of years ago, I was, I was, you know, behind, you know, double razor wire fence 
it just blows my mind. Um, but you know, the, the initial transition was tough. You know, the halfway house is not a fun place. You know, I told my wife, you know, like that after the first night she came to drop a couple things off for me and I just, I was broken down. I didn't sleep and I had a moment of weakness and I was like, I just want to go back. I mm. just want to go back to prison because prison is a thousand times better than the halfway house. And yeah, the halfway house was terrible and it made her cry and I felt awful, right? So I had that moment of weakness where it was just pure, I was just selfish, right? I didn't think that she was now seeing me for the first time in 11 months. I hadn't seen her. There's no visitation. And she's like, wow, you like want to go back to that? And I can't see you, right? So I didn't think how that would make her feel. And I had that moment. I rarely break like that. And I did. And I'm, it's like an embarrassing moment for me. But um, that probably tells you how bad the halfway houses are. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. Uh, they're, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're terrible. Uh, I would have taken isolation all over again. Um, anyway, so got through it, though, a couple months there. Uh, really not much you can do when you're in halfway house unless you have work release. Um, uh, we were not allowed to have visitors because of COVID-19 protocol. So anyway... I uh, got home, got moved to home confinement, and eventually found work uh, for a friend who owns a, a biotechnology company. And he's like, I got a spot for you. Let's go. And so he brought me on and, you know, we're, I still actually work for that company. And I also do, uh, I started really leaning into coaching and, and business mentorship as well as personal development uh, mentorship. So I have a coaching brand on, on Instagram. My brand is White Collar Savage. And it's, I share a lot of content around all kinds of stuff, you know, business development, personal development. It's really good. You can, and everybody should check that out. It's white collar savage. I've, I did a deep dive stock on stocking on uh, uh, Brandon. It's, it's good stuff that you got on there. Yeah. I try, I try to make it somewhat entertaining and interesting and it's really like, you know, fitness mindset, business yeah. uh, themed, if you will. And you know, it's, it's really just me trying to build a brand around, you know, who I am and the person that I've become, I've become that, you know, kind of white collar savage, that strong, you know, individual that I, I don't think I ever was. Mm -hmm. And the, the contrast between the person I am today and the person I was, even though I was wealthier and, you know, the world would perceive me as more successful, then I was, you know, like I'd said, I was out of shape. I was, you know, really like as an alcoholic, I was, you know, not disciplined. I would wake up late. Today, I'm I'm sober. I'm in the best shape of my life. I am deeply invested in, you know, serving others instead of just serving myself. I have a beautiful marriage. I just had a beautiful baby. Like, yeah. I, we just moved to this gorgeous home. Like, I'm just like, what? How is this my life? I'm just so grateful, man. Like, the well, you the got the good stuff going, I've, Brandon. That's for sure. I've got. I'm. I'm. I'm on. Right. We have these seasons of winning and losing in life, right? And yeah. I'm, I'm. I'm entering a winning season, and I'm grateful for it, and I'm enjoying it. So, um, it's just just been wonderful. Let me ask you this: If you have to look back and through everything that you've gone through, what do you think is your greatest takeaway of out there to the listeners? So you have so much strength in you. Yeah. that you will surprise yourself. Mm -hmm. But, but, those dark moments are not always instructive. You could cave. People do cave to these things. I will share another example on my way out. Uh, I was quarantined for the third time, and the guy in the cell next to me slit his wrist. Mm. He broke. Yeah. Now, what's the difference between that guy and me? 
choice. Yeah. Right. Choice. I chose to drop to the floor and do burpees and to, you know, really focus on thinking the right thought. I chose to develop mentorship uh, or to seek mentorship from others. I chose to try to serve other people first before trying to, before allowing myself to go too deep into myself, yeah. right? That, that's a very selfish action. And so there are small things that you can do that are not, they're small, but significant. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those are really the big takeaways for me was, you know, I had to make the choice to choose strength over weakness it is absolutely a choice and that choice lies within right in here in your mind absolutely in your mind yeah man that's good advice brandon and you live it and if you follow brandon on on uh his uh instagram you'll see it but um and, and there's a couple of books we need to promote here there's um there's looking forward which obviously this is what brandon done you get that on amazon uh yep you can get Nightmare Success, my book on Amazon and, and Barnes and Noble. Uh, if you guys like the show, man, uh, share it. If you get anything out of it, you know the whole thing about this show is for people to get just nuggets of wisdom. And this one, this particular episode's got so many nuggets of wisdom in it from Brandon. Uh, I know it's a hassle for everybody, but you know if you got time on Spotify or Apple leave a review because it just, it, it helps put the uh, show on steroids. Go to brickcassie.com. That's where I keep all my stuff. Remember I spell Cassidy wrong. It's not like Sean and David. It's with a T Y. And uh, as I used to say, when I was writing my emails back and forth, when I was at Leavenworth, stay strong. I'll do the same. Brandon, thanks so much for your story today. I appreciate it, man. Absolutely. Thank you, Brent. I really appreciate your time, man. Nine more success in and out. Thanks, everybody.